1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall and this is the Josh Marshall podcast. We are recording this episode about 20, 21 hours, uh, after the verdict in the, uh, George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial, um, and you know, uh, a very historic moment, a lot. Uh, I think you can, I think we can fairly say the whole country's attention sort of held in suspense, particularly for a few minutes, you know, for, for a while yesterday afternoon. Uh, but in some ways going on almost a year, I guess it was, it, I, when, when, um, when the verdict came down, I was sort of a little jarred to hear that it had been 11 months I was thinking, oh, maybe like eight months. That was sometime during the summer or something like that. Well, it was a little longer ago and we're a little further into the into in, into this year. Mm-hmm. Um, as as you know, uh Shafan, you know, it's 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 funny. One of the weird things about this last year, and this is like, you know, the the hundred and tenth most significant thing about this, but I realized before we started the episode that I have been so isolated from Electronic communications, electronic media. Because of the pandemic, I basically don't watch any TV. Um, I read a lot, but I was realizing I wasn't a hundred percent sure precisely how to pronounce this guy's name. <laughs> I know basically how to pronounce it. It's not like I've never heard it before, but I was just realizing again because everything for me is is written media. Um, you know, you know, so. Uh, Probably like many of you, I, I was waiting for the verdict yesterday afternoon with, with great apprehension, um, both because of the, the significance and gravity of the case itself, and also because of the implications of, of different potential verdicts. And my reaction was mainly one of relief uh, more than anything else. And it's a funny thing because when I, I did not watch the trial closely, didn't, you know, didn't didn't watch every moment of it, that kind of thing, but I did watch it, significant parts of it. And I was struck by how weak the defense was. Not that I thought there was a good defense to the charges, but I was I was struck by how weak the defense was. Was Um, at the same time, I think we all know, and I think that's what was was behind a lot of the tension and apprehension yesterday. That often there are these cases where, you know, it seems pretty clear to a lot of people that something very wrong happened, and yet the the police officers walk. You know, there's back in God, you know, almost thirty years ago now. Um, what in some ways was sort of the er case of this the, the the although the dynamics were very different the Rodney King case and it's it's worth remembering that in the in, in the beating of Rodney King Rodney King of course did not die um, as, as as a result of this although I believe he passed away a few years ago one of the things about that it was this totally fortuitous and random and rare thing that some guy was y- using a camcorder in his apartment and happened to, you know, <laughs> that for you young people, not everybody used to, you know, it wasn't the case. Everybody had iPhones in the past, right? Or iPhones are all these different ways we record things. But uh, defense attorneys have historically had a way of sort of breaking these video accounts down into their component parts. And that uh you know you sort of zoom in on the trees to get away from the forest as it were and as i took the uh, defense case it was basically two-pronged one was uh, floyd had uh, drugs in his system not acute levels of drugs but drugs in his system It sort of came out subsequently. He had struggled with opioid abuse. Um, He had drugs in his system and maybe he OD'd. Maybe he had a drug overdose and it just kind of happened while he was being arrested. Um, The problem with that was, it seemed to be pretty clear cut clinical evidence and clinical testimony that no, he died of asphyxia uh, leading to, I guess, um, cardiac arrest. And then the other argument was a pretty straightforward. This was solid police work. This is what you're supposed to do. And there was, you know, they had some police officers come on and say, well, no, that's not really, that's not really the case. But what struck me is I, I don't think you can look at that video and say, yeah, rock solid. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, and I, and I don't mean... I don't mean that in a flippant way. You you can say a lot of things. You could make an argument that that for various reasons maybe Chauvin wasn't you know um, criminally culpable, but I don't see how you look at that and say yeah that's textbook. Buy the book. That's how you do. I mean that just makes no sense. And yet they did sort of make that argument and then show the video and that. That I, I, so I was in this kind of funny in this in this uh, funny state of 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 apprehension and uh, suspense because especially after it came back that you know relatively short deliberations no questions to the judge and I think as we've seen when these guys get acquitted usually see these questions to judge you know where they're working over you know what is what is. Criminal culpability, stuff like this, no questions. And yet again, as we know, these these uh, uh, jury verdicts often um, shock us. And yet, it seems to have been pretty clear cut to the uh, jury as well. Especially when you figure that uh, you know every state has different versions of you know gradations of homicide, from everything from you know first degree murder, kind of like. I wanted to kill that person. I planned to kill that person. I killed the person. Two things that are just negligence, like he kind of didn't care. And uh, they didn't charge him with the first thing. No, there was no, there was, there was, the the jurors didn't have to think like he wanted George Floyd to die. All that, you know, they had three different charges, but they were all versions of you just didn't care. And you did something obviously very dangerous with indifferent to this, to this man's well-being. And, uh, and here we are. So it looks like, uh, I, I don't know, and it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Chauvin has you know, kind of much of a shot on appeal here. Um, not clear to me how he would. I guess if I were a defense attorney, I'd probably make some kind of argument about fair trial. You know, no one doesn't, no one doesn't know this story. No one doesn't know that it led to days of protests and, and, and riot across Minneapolis and then across the country and then even around the world. So I was, I was talking to someone yesterday about this and this person saying, I think he was definitely guilty, but I'm not sure that's a fair trial because how could it be a fair trial in, in, in the sense of you're supposed to have jurors who kind of come at it with an open mind, who can have an open mind. But there we are um and uh i think it's you know unquestionably good he was convicted both because he's guilty but also because of the larger context around this i do wonder whether the way that you know i said before how the defense just struck me as very weak and i wonder if that was because a lot of the defenses that Defense attorneys customarily use didn't seem available because of the sort of the changed perceptions of this whole issue. And what I mean is basically a kind of a scary black man defense, for lack of a better word, just didn't seem like it was not just palatable. No one's obviously that wouldn't go over well with the public, but defense attorneys don't care about the public. They're trying to get a trying to get an acquittal. Um, And so I wonder if that is, you know, if that's, if that was part of it, that again, certain kinds of defenses just were not available to them, not legally not available, just they knew it just would not, wouldn't work. And uh, I even had sometimes during the trial where I kind of thought, why didn't they try to take a plea? Because they, 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 they seem to have no defense here. And again, I'm not saying substantively do I think there's any defense. I'm saying legally they don't seem to have come up with anything. Uh, And yet, as we know, cops get uh, acquitted all the time in cases when it really seems like they're rock solid guilty. You need to get every single member of the jury to convict. Probably also true that... uh, there probably wasn't much of a deal on offer. I mean, if you think about it, I think that I think the state attorney general took over this prosecution, which Keith Ellison, uh, former member of Congress, it's not like they were going to say, "Oh, plead out and we'll you know give you two years probation or something like that." That that just was not. That was never going to happen. So maybe they didn't have an opportunity. In any case, uh, sort of a a, a, a somber, uh, more you know, different. There's a bit of a different tone today's episode. So I'm just going to remind you without reading through the copy that our podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's a great product. Uh, support our sponsors. And in this case it's a twofer because it, it really is a great product and you can support our sponsors and support us that way. And if you want to give it a try, you can get twenty five percent off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's Grady's com with promo code TPM. And you can also pick it up in, you know, a lot of grocery stores and stuff like that. So Kate, what do you what do you think? What do you think after yesterday? Where are you at?
0: I mean, I think emotionally I was in a similar state to you that, you know, when the news came out that the verdict had been reached and we had, you know, kind of a half hour window where we knew it was coming down, it just felt so real to me because we had been preparing for the verdict, you know, Josh Kabinsky and I were kind of doing the, the, the prep work there to be ready for when it came down, but, but stuff like this, you know, it could be weeks depending on if the jury agrees or if you know even just one recalcitrant member can drag it out for days. And so I think when we we found out the verdict was in, you know, a mere 10 11 hours after they started deliberating, you I mean it, it, this kind of that dead air between when we know something and not know something is the worst time in media in general I think, you know, and this holds for presidential elections and all kinds of stuff like this, but you know, and I heard takes that were like this is good for the defense. This is good for the prosecution, you know, just all over the board. But, you know, I'd watched the closing arguments of the trial very carefully and was kind of struck by similar to what you were saying. The prosecution's argument could be so easily distilled down to one main thesis, which was trust your eyes. You've seen the video. You watched this man's life be snuffed out for nine minutes straight. You're a human being. Is that murder to you? And then the defense, it just felt kind of like the legal equivalent of throwing a handful of spaghetti at the wall, which makes sense because, you know, their job there is to sow as much doubt as possible to make sure the prosecution can't, uh, you know, overcome the reasonable doubt hurdle. So it just, you know, so much stuff got dragged into it. The the drug stuff, as you say, uh, Floyd's history with struggling with drugs, um, you know, different plausible medical musings, you know, maybe he died of heart failure at that exact time, even stuff like bringing up carbon monoxide poisoning from his head's proximity to the tailpipe of the police car. Um, and then, you know, something I was surprised by is the defense showed a lot of video and you would think that that video is bad for the defense, but they really tried to focus on what happened before Chauvin got there and kneeled on Floyd. So, you know, he was struggling with police, they emphasized that he is was a big guy. Um, you know, and that they read out the the dispatcher call that Joven responded to um to kind of gin up the idea that he was headed into an uncertain situation. Um, which, you know, to some degree, that's what police are always doing. Yeah, you know? yeah definitely.
1: I mean, you don't know what you're gonna what's gonna happen. I mean The thing there, though, what really strikes me about this, and it's what's different. Remember that, again, another horrific case and stunningly in the same city, Minneapolis, um, the Castile killing, Flandro Castile. Uh, And that one, you know, it's this it's uh, again, one of these horrifying, but also kind of uncanny videos where and it's I believe the video in that case is is taken by his girlfriend I believe who was in the shotgun seat you know next seat he's in the driver's seat and just to remind everybody in that case he had had a legal gun in the car and he told the police right up front I've got a gun you know I've got a legal gun it's in the it's in the glove compartment and I think he went to get it and he shot right and that's sort of that story and I What struck me in this case is many of these, I would say most of these cases, come down to these momentary decisions where the police officer says, I was afraid. I thought I was in danger. And it's at a basic level, I think we all agree that, man, we cannot all our lives, or far more often, black people's lives can't be hanging by a thread by the sort of the momentary subjective thoughts of a police officer. Having said that, as a jury, it's hard to know what someone was thinking in a sort of a split second. You can't really know and and things are inherently subjective. And if you want to kind of, you know, play devil's advocate in this case, you know, police officer hears gun, sees the guy, you know, who it's hard to know with a certainty what was going through that person's head. And when you're talking about guilt and innocence, you really do need to, to focus in on that person's mental state at that moment, not the broader question of race and policing. In this case, though, it's precisely how long it went on. There's no one moment where you say, God, I, I, can't, I don't want to second guess the, 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 you know, the momentary decision he had to make about his life and his family and all that kind of stuff. You just say like, wow, this guy is cuffed. I mean, what is he going to do, right? I mean, he's his handcuffed behind his back and he's, he's immobilized by other people. But even if not, I mean, there's, there's very little that someone who's handcuffed behind their back can do. And you're kneeling over his neck. And, and everybody, and, and there's those other videos, I guess they were actually the, you know, the uh, police camera videos of, of these bystanders saying, Hey, I I think you're going to kill him. I'm not sure he can breathe. And he's saying, I can't breathe. And it's that thing kind of like, there's no one moment. It's just, you just didn't care. Mm -hmm. Like you were just totally indifferent to what was happening to this guy. And again, what gets me and kind of points to the sort of the larger issues here is it's not just him. There's three other police officers there, and like I guess at one point you know one kind of says, "Hey, is he still breathing?" You know, or kind of like, uh, "I think we should roll him over on his side." But but none of them, and again, two of those guys are are uh, one uh, biracial Nigerian and white Caucasian parents, and another I believe was hamang uh, you know, Southeast Asian uh, immigrants. And none of them said, dude, 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 you, you got to get off his neck. Like this is out of control. And so you just see, it's not just that guy. Mm-hmm. It's, and again, that lack of that, that is always the, the sort of the hold card for police, sometimes legitimately of, of look, you have to make this momentary decision and are you going to second guess someone's decision thinking their life was in danger, you know, allegedly, and this is just not there.
0: Well, and I think that's potentially the most striking thing about this whole case is that it, we had video of it, you know, thanks to that 17 year old girl who was on the scene, but it was like you say, a protracted, you know, he was kneeling on him for a long time. He, it's not like he was unaware that George Floyd was suffering because he was saying that he was. And meanwhile, you also had bystanders, you know, getting increasingly alarmed by it. And like you say, the other officers, you know, even airing doubts about it. Um, you know, not to mention the other pieces of this, that's, a big line for the prosecution was when someone's in your custody, they're in your care, you know, police officers are supposed to do, um, you know, CPR, different kind of things until the paramedics get there. But, you know, we have all of this evidence. And then we have the fact that during the trial, you know, no one from the police department would, would come and kind of vouch for Chauvin and say that he did the right thing. And instead you had the opposite, you had people, uh, you know, in police organizations saying this is, counter the training that they've received, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And even with all of that, the entire country was waiting with bated breath yesterday evening, waiting to see if that would be enough. So, you know, it's like the immediate aftermath of this, I too, I think, just felt basic relief at even the kind of logistically what comes next, because I think if he had been acquitted or maybe even not convicted on the murder charge, but just the, the lesser manslaughter charge, I mean, I think there, there would have been protests nationwide and people were already so angry and it was very emotional and obviously nothing wrong with peaceful protests, but you're just, you're hyping up the potential for deadly conflicts with the police. Um, but if, if that's the bar that we're at to get a successful conviction of, uh, an officer who killed someone, I mean, those are so many factors that came together in a way that made this case so indisputable. But, you know, imagine if there hadn't been video or if that video hadn't gone viral the way it did. You know, a big thing on Twitter yesterday was people were sharing that initial- That
1: original account. Yeah, I saw that. I That was very striking.
0: Police, which, you know, said essentially there was an an altercation and the the man involved had like a medical event and went to the hospital and died there which can you imagine if that's what we were working off of?
1: It, it really was. I'm sure I saw that a year ago at some point, but it was striking to see it because, as, as you say, by that account, trying to arrest a guy, you know, go out, standard arrest, trying to arrest a guy, he struggles, something, he has some medical event, they try to revive him, doesn't work out, and he died. Right. You know, and he did struggle. He did struggle, and, and I don't think we're ever going to know quite, why i mean he kind of told us why in in the moment george floyd did he was freaked out about being put in the back of the police car he's just had covid he's been in a police he he basically panicked about the sort of the claustrophobia of of why all this kind of stuff but it wasn't even taking the police version of that event kind of on its own terms this wasn't some kind of like life and death struggle where he's, you know, trying to attack them. He was basically pleading like, he you know, even that didn't really capture the, the fullness of, 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 of what was happening there. But, yeah, it didn't, did, didn't add in that uh, he was completely subdued for almost 10 minutes. And the medical event was like pretty obviously tied at some level to like constricting his neck. Right. for seven or eight minutes and yeah, yeah i mean it, what if what if what if you wouldn't know that because clearly they weren't treating it like up oh, Just he died sorry you know don't want happen
0: and not to mention that the struggle piece kind of drives me nuts because that's a refrain that we keep hearing especially from those on the right when this happens is like well I'll just comply you know do what they're telling you and you'll be fine first of all i mean how many incidents have we seen where you can comply all you want if they're ready to shoot you they're ready to shoot you you know that was the case with um, the 13 year old boy that the video came out recently of him you know he had his hands up when he was shot so clearly it's like that's not a fail safe approach not to mention in the george floyd case when you know kind of the struggle occurred he it was what three officers to him, three to one, he was unarmed. He wasn't trying to be violent. He was just clearly freaked out. And you're like, if the police don't have the capacity to deal with people who are panicking when they get arrested, something's pretty wrong because pretty much everyone's going to panic when they get arrested. I mean, my heart rate goes up when I go through security at the airport. So like we should probably have that pretty figured out by now. You should at least have the training to realize that most people aren't going to be cool, calm and collected when they get stuffed into the back of a police car, you know.
1: And, and, you know, as, as everybody says, proportionality, Yeah, it's not a capital offense, right? I mean, you know, okay, you shouldn't do that. Maybe there are laws, that you, there are laws against resisting arrest, you know, I think it would be overcharging if, you know, if George Floyd had not died and all that kind of stuff may, you know, again, there's ways to deal with that killing the person is not, is not the, is, 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 is not the way to do it. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it is. it, And this is what, a, you know, a huge amount of the dialogue about, uh, police reform is about kind of how would you have, you know, how would the police have handled that if the job was get this to a peaceful conclusion whenever, where everyone's okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess that the 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 defense did try with that kind of superhuman, yep. you know, superhuman strength, uh, thing. And it's true. Uh, Floyd was a big guy, you know, a former athlete. You know, worked as a, I guess, uh, you know, security guard, bouncer. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but you know, four police officers, all armed. Uh, you know, so I mean, there, there's, it 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 is uh, it's a it's a it's a weird thing because I I'm I'm trying to say more than comes across probably in the words but again if you if the question was how do you get this to a peaceful conclusion where no one gets hurt clearly that's not that's <laughs> that's not the 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 model that was being uh pursued there and even one that would have uh, even, even handled by the books, it probably wouldn't have been that it's someone has already been sort of placed in the, in the role of potential criminal. They haven't been totally compliant and you see how these things work. We've seen it play out. The model is, you know, subdue almost at all costs. I don't mean, you know, that, that the actual intended plan is, you know, use any level of violence. But uh, it it is interesting um, from a reform point of view, and I would imagine this would be very different from, would probably go against a lot of police training. You know, in that case, they're trying to arrest him, uh, put him in the backseat of the car. He freaks out. The situation seems kind of unstable, but he's not armed he's not armed. He's really not a danger to anybody. Um, you know, maybe, you know, theoretically he could have punched one of the officers, but you know, that, that's not a, that's not a rationale for, for, uh, uh, lethal force. Is it possible in a situation like that, you kind of back up and say, okay, let's settle this down. You're accused of something. We need to take you into arrest, but let's, let's slow down. We're going to call someone who, you know, the equivalent of sort of like a mental health person Mm -hmm. to kind of talk everybody through it. I I would imagine that is, you know, that is, that is just not, that is not in line with even, you know, correct police procedure. But if the goal is let's get everybody alive through this, maybe it should be.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think a big part of this too, is there's so much talk about, how it's a difficult job and you want to give police the benefit of the doubt because they're dealing with, you know, they're dealing with people at their worst generally, and they're dealing with people who are potentially violent. And I think all that is super valid, but the flip side of that coin is when you're the police, the onus is on you. You know, your job is to deescalate. It's not the person you're arresting. It's not their job to deescalate. Like, and like you say, you know, obstructing your arrest is a, you know, is a crime. And that's not something you want to do. But there is one party who's the trained professional. So I think that's also why all this kind of talk about just comply, do what they say, kind of rubs me the wrong way, because it's their job to keep the temperature low or should be their job, which I don't know that it is right now. Because for so long, there's been kind of, it seems to be this warrior mindset, instead of, you know, a community partner mindset, which is why I think so much of this ends in violence. And, you know, in Berkeley right now, uh, the Berkeley City Council, I believe, just passed something um, instituting a new traffic, traffic enforcement department that will be, kind of separate from the police, and that will be unarmed. And the point of that is because so many of these incidents start with like, really kind of low level things like traffic stops, or like responding to a a counterfeit $20 bill that escalate into a fatality when there's no violent crime that's happening. You know, so I think that was kind of interesting to me looking at it from that vantage point, which is, I think it's muddied in the broad stroke conversation of, you know, the police are dealing with violent people that have to make bad decisions. That's definitely true. But a lot of these cases are starting in decidedly nonviolent situations that the police, you know, are escalating, despite the fact that they're the ones who generally have the better firepower, who have backup, who should be, you know, uh, having some restraint in their dealings with them. But on the kind of congressional level of this, the kind of natural questions that were asked to lawmakers last night were, A, how do you feel about the verdict? B, what's the future of policing reform in Congress? And while most of the A's sounded very similar, you know, even across the aisle, most Republicans said, you know, the system worked the way it's supposed to, X, Y, Z. But on policing reform were essentially nowhere, because, you know, the Republicans proffer Tim Scott's policing um, bill that Democrats say is toothless and that does a lot to shield uh, police officers from lawsuits and, you know, accountability that way. And then, you know, Republicans say that Democrats offerings, which I think is called the George Floyd policing bill is too harsh and too punitive against police officers. So
1: what is just just generally what is in that bill? The Democrats reform bill just broad, not, you know, Broadly speaking, what is included in it? What kind of things?
0: Yeah, I mean, the big sticking point is um, the police impunity thing, that it would really kind of take a knife to that. And that is the thing that uh, Republicans refuse to accept. But, you know, I think great swaths of it are, are pretty innocuous, pretty more on the, you know, body cam type level that you would think Republicans could agree on. But, you know, it gets into what we were talking about last week, which is, as we saw from that, uh, that one hearing we were talking about, when you, Republicans tend to take this absolutist position about policing, which is that, you know, any way to hold them more accountable is a direct attack against the people who are in charge of keeping us safe. And how do you have a debate about that? You know, not to mention that the filibuster in its current form it's pretty much ensuring that neither of those bills is going anywhere. So, you know, it's, we kind of have had this, this, what feels to me like a watershed moment in American history, you know, starting with the, maybe the largest protest movement we've ever seen last summer and then concluding with a police officer, you know, being convicted of uh, the top charge, which has a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison. So, you know, it's, it's been this incredible, sort of history altering moment that probably won't see absolutely no legislative change come out of it.
1: It's interesting. I mean, I, I do, you know, there's, there's a lot of these things, it even, even the qualified immunity thing is to a, to a significant degree, a judge thing, Mm -hmm. not a statute thing. Um, and obviously, um, a lot of these things come down to juries. And this is the thing about people get frustrated about juries, but broadly speaking, you know, the issue with juries here is something that in general is a good thing and we should applaud. And it is a, in its current iteration, it's a fundamentally democratic, small d democratic thing. And what I mean by that is that you can pass laws and say this is against the law, that's against the law, this is an exception to the law. But basically the jury system means that a law cannot be greatly in tension with public opinion and public attitudes about what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And you know, in general, in general, that's a good thing. In this case, as we can see, It's not a great thing. Um, But I do think that what is potentially a, I don't want to say a breakthrough, but a significant movement here is juries may start to see these matters differently. And that is probably a bigger deal because the law can, you know, the law on its face can handle a lot of these cases you know, the charges get brought, um, juries don't, you know, don't, uh, tend not to go along. You know, the, the, point you were making before about when, uh, people on the right say, Hey, why didn't you just comply, you know, to kind of see it in equal terms. And you made the very good point that the police are the ones here who work for the state. They're responsible for, for, for following a set of rules. Um, sure you, you are legally obligated to comply in almost every case with what a police officer tells you to do you know you can work it out with a judge later whether the police officer was within their rights to tell you to do something um but that is a legal obligation but the key is that we already know the person being arrested is in the wrong that's why they're being arrested you know i mean that that's that's a given that's a given that they're we we we, we that is sort of baked into the interaction that the person being arrested is, is not, is, you know, is not following best practices, right? At least that's the assumption or else why are they being arrested in the first place? So, um, you know, it's not a, it's not an equal thing. The police officers have more obligations because they represent the state state's supposed to follow the law. And we're, you know, kind of giving all these benefits of the doubt and allowing them to, you know, at least temporarily take away people's liberty because they're they're doing things, you know, th- they're doing things right. Um, you know, having said all this, you know, I get it. Police officers, you get a call. You don't know what situation you're going into. You know, there's the, 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 the cases I imagine that are... Um, particularly unnerving are the ones sort of like spousal, you know, kind of couple having a fight. You don't know what you're walking into there. Obviously a very volatile situation, who's armed, who's not. And, you know, let alone, you know, armed robbery in progress. That's that's scary. I don't, I don't, I don't. Um, and as you say, you catch people at their worst. They're probably at their worst because some hap- something just happened that they're in the process of being arrested. So that's all, that's all given. And I don't, I don't, Take away for a second that that's, that's, a, you know, that's a scary situation. Um, it's an unstable situation. And even to the point we were saying before about these things that, you know, kind of someone's tags were out of date and suddenly the person's dead 10 minutes later, right? It is certainly true. It's not common, but it does happen. Someone's tags are out of date. Well, it turns out that person is wanted in another state for like armed robbery. So for them, that, you know, kind of minor interaction is, is a ticket back to jail, maybe. And that person's going to come out shooting. You don't know. Um, at a certain level, this is the job. This is the job. It's it's there's there are some uh, inherent risks of it, and I and I don't want to. There's no point and there's no need to uh, downplay that or deny that. You know, you said before, Kate, this that there's increasing. There is you know, this kind of warrior mentality, they're actually, and I think this came out about Minneapolis, although perhaps it's another city where there's been a number of these cases, there have been uh, police unions that do these call killology trainings or warrior, you know, warrior mentality trainings, and basically the, they are these trainings, I think in most cases they're by the unions, not by the police departments themselves. But that do train police officers literally to sort of see each interaction as a sort of a life or death struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to kill him, or is he going to kill you? And uh, we can say, even with being being cognizant of the real risks of, of being a police officer, that man, if you're going into, you're going into traffic stops and kind of like, you know, shoplifting or, or, you know, kind of passing a fake $20 bill with that kind of mentality, a lot of bad shit's going to happen. It's just, you know, the whole thing has to be unwound.
0: Which I think, you know, you can see that in how I think it's so shocking to a lot of Americans when you talk about other countries, police forces that aren't armed, you know, that seems so foreign to us because, the militarization of the police departments have, you know, made them akin to a branch of the military. They've got so many guns and just gigantic, um, you know, some had like tanks and stuff, you know, or or, or, like armored cars and all this stuff. And you're like, you know, the, the vast majority of what the police, department is dealing with is what we've been talking about low level stuff. A lot of it is traffic related, you know, and I think you're completely right that if you come in kind of all ramboed up and with the mentality that this person is the enemy and I'm, I'm the soldier for America, of course, that's going to end in a ton of these terrible killings because, you're not going in with the mindset of like, how do I deescalate? You're going in with the opposite mindset.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, most of these cases that we, certainly most of the cases that I have gotten attention are cases with white officers and, and black people, usually black men. Um, so the overlay of race here is a huge factor in this. And, and we've, you know, we focused on, on what I guess I would call, Sort of structural dynamics that don't explicitly focus on, you know, focus on race. Um, that is obviously a huge, huge, uh, you know, driver of of um, of of all these cases. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know. The, the big thing in my mind is that even if you take that out of the mix or don't make that the central focus, you often have just an approach to policing where you're going to have a lot more tragic situations than you should. Um, and w- one point I want to make here, and this is, you know, in a way, a defense of the police or kind of like, you know, why can't we have, uh, you know, why can't we have policing where, uh, where the police aren't armed? Well, <laughs> a good reason is, is because we have a heavily armed civilian population, you know right. most of the countries where um most police don't carry sidearms or don't have them you know kind of literally on you know kind of holstered ready to go are cases where the police can assume very few people are armed mm-hmm. and so in a lot of ways, all of this is wrapped up in our gun culture, the sort of the broader culture of violence that is just endemic. To America, and has really always been endemic to America, even before you had quite the, um, quite the prevalence of firearms that you do now. And w- one way, one 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 thing that uh, I have thought about recently about this is that um, if you go back to the 1990s when you first had you know assault weapons bans and and uh, you know the first examples of, you know, background checks and stuff like that. The police, police unions were consistently backers of things like assault weapons bans and various kind of gun control things like that. Right. And if you think about it, that's hardly surprising. They want, they want an edge in the use of force. They want to have more firepower you know, even understand the police on the most, you know, on the most cynical terms, of course, they want to have more firepower. Who doesn't? Right. And, you know, to the extent that the whole kind of basis of the sort of modern theories of the state are a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. You don't just want a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. You want a lot more force than even illegitimate force. Right. But something happened over the last 20 years where. Police unions are no longer there politically. And the reason is, I mean, it's hard to imagine you know, it makes no sense that the, the the position of police would have changed on this, but I think what it is is that policing has become politicized and police culturally, demographically have become so much more on the right. Mm-hmm. And sort of part of that larger gun culture that they don't support restrictions on firearms for what are basically ideological reasons, even though they are, you know, demonstrably against self-interest in the context of policing. Police, again, just in that purely cynical wanting to monopolize, the, the you know, uh, lethal force, should want the whole population unarmed, but they don't and that really gives you that gives you a sense of of the dynamics of the last quarter century or so
0: I think that's totally right and so kind of linked into what we've been talking about too with the legislative side the same way that the conversation around guns for Republicans has become absolutist that any infringement at all is uh, you know a brazen theft of liberty it's the same thing with policing any infringement on police powers is a direct, you know, hit to their safety and uh, exactly what you're saying, kind of an ideologically loaded kind of rejection um, of people who they say, you know, have very hard, very dangerous jobs, which is true, but it makes it impossible to have that conversation if, you know, if that's, if that's how dug in the position is.
1: It's also worth saying here, and I don't have the precise statistics in front of me, but um, dangerous job a lot of uncertainty, 100%. It's not the most dangerous job. It's not even close to the most dangerous job. Statistically, policing is not that high on the rating of of dangerous jobs. Now, the ones that are more dangerous are pretty dangerous, like commercial fishermen, stuff like that. I mean, they're not, you know, not for the faint of heart, but it is always important to tether the conversation to some statistical realities that that case where you know, ordinary traffic stop. You don't know that that, you know, the, the guy in the car is on the run from mul- you know, for multiple homicides and he just comes out, you know, firing. That's rare. That's really rare. Happens. I'd be nervous about it, but mm-hmm. it's rare and it's important to to remember that.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we have time for I think one reader question. Thank you to everybody who sent them in. Um, you know, we're gonna roll over some for future pods. So if your question doesn't get up. You know, addressed this pod. It might in the future, and definitely keep sending them in. Yeah, we
1: got like seven or eight really good questions, didn't we? We got yeah, yeah. yeah, So keep them coming.
0: Yeah. So I think today we're going to address a question about uh, debt and the deficit. You know, which has come up in especially in regards to these big, you know, the COVID relief package, the infrastructure package, which are many, you know, trillions of dollars and a kind of resounding reaction to that has been, so I guess we, you know, we don't care about the deficit anymore. It's been like a pretty shocking political shift to go from this, you know, really intense austerity griping of the Obama era to where we are now, where Democrats are pretty much just not even, you know, ad- addressing the argument at all, um, which we've kind of talked about on former pods. But our question is, Why can't Biden simply say in a major public address, Republicans were all for unlimited deficit spending when it was in support of Trump's huge tax breaks for big corporations and the richest 0.1% of Americans? which has been proven in every case never to have increased employment, improved the economy, or provided even the tiniest trickle down to ordinary taxpayers. Why is deficit spending or tax increases in support of critical infrastructure not worthy of their support apart from it being what Democrats want? Um, You know, and the question is basically why can't Biden just say that, you know, why can, why can Democrats believe it, but don't just put it out on the record publicly. So Josh, you want to start with your thoughts on that?
1: Well, It's a good question. And I, and I think the, um, the important thing to keep in mind, there is, you know, we, we, all of us political people, um, particularly in this very polarized age have certain things that we see as just overwhelmingly obvious, but that not everybody thinks is overwhelmingly obvious. And, and, and that, um, that means that there is this desire to you know, if Biden just hit Republicans with a truth bomb like that in a nationally televised address, that would be some sort of transformative event and, 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 and uh, they couldn't respond and, and, and that would really shake things up. Uh, that's not really how it works. Um, I think to the extent we're thinking along these lines, what is important is to, you know, kind of boil that down to a few basic points. Republicans never care about the deficit when they are in charge. Uh, the deficit, you know, we can run deficits and that's okay. Uh, maybe if you run deficits, it can actually create larger growth, which actually shrinks the deficits over time. What tends to be effective is having some key points like that that you're just kind of coming back to again and again in a lot of different contexts, in small speeches and large speeches that that one statement in a big nationally televised thing, that that does not break through the way you think. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and the people who push these ideas, uh, often fake claims, they have rejoinders. They may not be good ones, but they do have rejoinders. Um, even even the point that the uh, listener made about, you know, it's never been, you know, kind of, Upper income tax cuts have never been shown to sort of boost growth. Well, that's not quite true. First of all, econ- economics is not physics, right? You can have overwhelming consensuses, but there's always someone who, who disagrees a little. And uh, giving tax breaks to very wealthy people, that can have some minor effect on growth or at least you can't prove it doesn't. But again, my, my big answer is the idea of one big speech that kind of shakes everything up. That's just, it doesn't work that way. Um, and it's easy for us to overstate uh, how much messaging matters at all, but to the extent that it does, and it does to a limited extent, it's more consistency over time than one big thing.
0: Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this. First, kind of in line, with, um, with your point on on the rejoinders to things like this, we do have some evidence that in 2020, Republicans constantly labeling Democrats up and down ballot as socialist had a negative political effect, particularly in Florida, particularly in Miami-Dade County, where you have a lot of you know Latin Americans, um, Latin American immigrants who have experienced socialism in a way that Americans haven't, you know, um, and who associate that with, you know, violent uh, regimes and, you know, everything like that. And the Trump campaign was actually laser focused on that kind of micro messaging um, in Florida. You know, they had a YouTube ad running that falsely said the Maduro regime backed Biden's candidacy, um, there was pretty rampant misinformation efforts, especially on WhatsApp and other things that were heavily used by, um, you know, Hispanic people. And not to say that that should be a deterrent for Democrats, but we have seen that the, this Republican tagline has some political heft. Um, so I do think that could be a good argument to kind of keep the big you know not keep it under wraps not keep it hidden but maybe be a little don't give don't give Republicans such an easy target to say you know big spending equals socialist because we've seen that, that can have some bad effects and then the other piece of this is i think i think biden and the democrats so far have had experienced very little pushback to these big uh, gigantic packages that are really expensive in part because even economists who are deficit hawks Agree that we needed intense stimulus to keep the economic conditioning brought on by the pandemic from worsening. So, to this point, we've pretty much had, you know, putting aside maybe like right wing people on the fringes, but there's been a pretty broad agreement that we needed big spending. Republicans didn't go along with that, but experts, even on the conservative side of the spectrum, you know, our former, uh, CBO director Doug Elmenhorf, he said, you know, we need at least $1 trillion of spending. So there was some agreement that kind of gave, I think, Biden and the Democrats a bit of cover that everybody kind of agreed with that. Whether that will hold, I'm Not to mention that our first big spending package also, you know, was born in the cradle of the pandemic and resulting economic devastation. So I think we saw from Republicans largely failed attempts to kind of uh, advertise against the COVID relief bill. It's really hard to make the argument because we don't want to increase the deficit. We're not going to deliver help to people in a once-in-a-generation pandemic. Um, so I do think those factors have been present so far that have kind of, you know, smoothed the way for Biden and Democrats to kind of get through with this big spending without having a lot of pushback. But you know, there. Has also been just a shift in the party, which is since the Obama years in two thousand and nine there were fourteen Democrats who were from red states and more inclined to be on the more deficit hockey side of things since that breed has gone you know almost extinct you know that 's why mansion is such the the center of the problem for Democrats right now, and I think with that shift where people retired or lost their reelections uh you Simply have fewer people who would truly earnestly identify as deficit hawks within the Republican Party. Um, So you know that's just kind of a dynamic that's undergirding. I think the Democrat shift to the left. uh, You know, kind of underneath the the rest of the political dynamics right now.
1: What you know, you made you made a good point, and we can we can conclude on this about about you know the the fairly strong evidence that uh, the socialism label. Um, even though it's only embraced by a fairly small fraction of the Democratic Party, was pretty damaging to Democrats in certain focused constituencies, largely Latin American immigrant communities or recent immigrant communities that have historical experience or personal experience in autocratic governments. So, you know, autocratic governments, uh, socialist governments, Cuba, Venezuela, et cetera. One one thing I, I I think is always important to keep in mind, and it's it's um it's easy to lose track of, is that it is two things. One is policy literalism. Democrats are are I think uniquely vulnerable to this. And that is, well, you know, uh, here's the policy. It's obviously good for you. Why are you why are you having a bad reaction to it? you know we said that this this tax increase only applies to people vastly more well you know well off than you so what you know you shouldn't care about that well people don't think in 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 these kind of literal terms and issues of trust in government you know uh, uh play into that there's or kind of like you know th- this assumption that if you people should uh react logically to what you say by your logic and if they don't react logically if you just say it louder they'll get logical about it well (laughs) that's not that that's and that that socialism thing is is a good example of that these are people who associate socialism with authoritarian often you know violent regimes that may be socialist by certain aspects of their economic policy but are a lot else And, you know, you can explain to yourself that, well, no, socialism, what we're what what people like AOC or DSA people are talking about is more like, you know, Scandinavian socialism, big safety nets, uh, more heavy regulation, stuff like that. Well, yeah, but you got to be inside people's experience. That's not what everybody thinks. And a lot of people in the United States associate socialism as a sort of a kind of like a low energy version of what they had in the Soviet Union. That's just the reality. You got to operate within that reality. Um, You can't, the fact that it's a misunderstanding, you know, that may, that can make you feel, feel better about yourself, but that doesn't help. You know, you need to, you you need to operate within people's own experience. That's just a, that's just a political reality. So that was, that was, I think a very successful uh, first, first uh, Mm -hmm. version of our new, of our new listener, listener question segment. I thought yes. that, was, that was great. So keep sending yeah. those, keep sending those questions in. Uh, like I said, we got, I think we got seven or eight this time. And, uh, because of the Chauvin verdict, we kind of, you know, we got to fewer, fewer of the questions than, than we would have liked. But as Kate said, we're going to roll some of them over, uh, maybe do more questions in other episodes, but keep them coming. Cause, uh, I really, I, I enjoy that. And, and, uh, you're the listeners, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're just two people so we you know it's not always it's not always perfect for us to come up with what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about and what we're gonna answer you know better than we do you're the listeners you're the one who the shows for
0: right and you know also listener feedback related I did just want to say we got some some emails about my audio not being the best and just to let everyone know we're aware of that um, I have you know TPM sent me some good heavy-duty audio equipment. And I just happened to be at my parents' house this week. But next week, I'll be back at my apartment uh, with the full audio set up. So if you're one of the people who's, you know, hearing me a bit echoey or, uh, you know, not crisp, clear audio that we want to deliver, just hang tight. By next week, you know, our, our new technology is in place. We have all the kings ironed out. And, you know, it'll be... Uh, yeah,
1: you'll have, two- like, like Josh-level... Audio quality.
0: If you can imagine that. Yeah,
1: there you go. There you go. (laughs) All right. So uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Great stuff. I've been drinking it for years. It's uh, not just a product read for me. It's really great stuff. I enjoy it. Got a cup of it right uh I'm right, eye in the cup right now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off your first order at Grady's if you use the promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM and you can pick it up in your grocery markets and other other places you buy food and drinks. So give it a try. <laughs> All, All right. right. Thanks, catch everyone. you later. All right, bye bye.